Welcome back to the 31st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how Elon Musk may not have been the savior that many people thought he would be when it comes to Twitter, the unglorious work that comes with governing a nation, and an article that discusses the future of a workplace. Is it going to be hybrid? Is it going to be distributed? Or is it going to be remote? We'll discuss all of that in our last article. And of course, we'll finish the podcast with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. So, Speaking of that last article, how do you see the future of business evolving when it comes to remote or virtual work? You know, with a large amount of tech that we have at our fingertips nowadays, you know, it's hard to imagine that companies will not continue cutting down on the amount of fixed expenses. They wouldn't have to necessarily pay for offices, rental spaces, even office hardware. They could just supply their people with computers or request that they buy their own computers and maybe give them a little bit of a subsidy to do so. So then they can cut down on a lot of this fixed cost that they would be paying monthly for having a physical location. But then you have to ask the question, is this type of work sustainable? Will people be able to build the connections and the culture that is so important to ensuring businesses thrive? If you have any thoughts, throw them down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And as a business major, I have lots of different opinions, which we'll get to with the final article. So our first one comes from Fox Business. Twitter CEO Elon Musk details election integrity content moderation on platform ahead of 2022 midterms. So many pundits and figures in politics have been speculating what will come of Twitter under Elon Musk. If you're on the right, you think that he is a savior of free speech. And if you're on the left, you think he is a person who's going to allow hateful messaging to be proliferated on the Internet. So there are obviously very, very varied opinions of Elon Musk. But they have all been watching with bated breath. And one of the first moves Elon did was fire some of the top executives. And that gave some people hope about what was to come. But at the end of the day, he's not moving as fast as some people would like. And there have been a few statements put out by Twitter speaking to this one. One of them said, quote, Twitter will not allow anyone who is deplatformed for violating Twitter rules back on the platform until we have a clear process for doing so, which will take at least a few more weeks, end quote. And this is very revealing to some and really troubling to some others. Some people argue that it's very smart to not have these controversial members that were banned or taken off the platform for hateful speech or maybe inciting violence. Maybe it's smart to not put them on right before a midterm election where they could possibly have a little bit of sway and maybe not in the way that is healthy for the country. Now, that's just an opinion of some. Others on the libertarian side are saying, no, 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 what are you doing? They were banned. You can easily go in and fix that and get them back on the platform. Why haven't you, Elon? 
And I read a different article this morning, actually, before doing this podcast, that the moderation board that Elon is planning to put in place, which we'll describe here in a minute, uh, he kind of he kind of caved to the people on the left who were worried about hateful speech being allowed on Twitter. And he's basically keeping some of the moderation tools that they currently use at Twitter within the service. He's not going to take those moderation tools away from Twitter workers who have gone through for years and flagged content and tried to take down hurtful speech or just hurtful posts that really made someone feel uncomfortable or felt as though they weren't welcomed. So a lot of people on the right are not happy with this. They feel that Elon has caved. And people on the left are saying, well, okay, good. He's at least taking this issue seriously, but we'll see how well he actually implements this. And, of course, we're speaking maybe a week into his acquisition of Twitter, so nothing's for sure. He's still getting his footing. We don't know what he's going to do. So I think people jumping to harsh criticisms so quickly uh, is kind of premature. And I'm not saying that he is the best person to do the job, that uh, he's going to make it a more free speech oriented platform overall. And there's just going to be small cases of moderation for really bad actors. I have no idea what he's going to do. So I'm not going to pretend to know what he's going to do. I just have a few different articles that I've been reading along with this one that start to shape a little bit of a picture. And it's not exactly what people on the right were thinking it was going to be. So Musk is withholding these people that were very controversial from coming back onto the platform. And some people are arguing that this is even more controversial than letting them back on because they have a very influential message and not allowing them back on Twitter is actually going to influence the midterms more than letting them back on Twitter would influence the midterms. So, you know, he Elon's put in a really tough position here. And also the team that he's putting around himself are put in a really tough position here, especially taking over right before the midterms. So going forward, though, Twitter is going to have a content moderation council. It will consist of members from all sides. Quote, Twitter con- Twitter's content moderation council will include representatives with widely divergent views which will certainly include the civil rights community and groups who face hate-fueled violence, end quote. So that's a quote directly from Elon, who put it out on Twitter. And, you know, this sounds great in premise. Having a, a council of multiple people, if not a very large amount of people and organizations that are focused on these sort of issues and really spend most of their time fighting for either civil rights or free speech or maybe fight to protect marginalized communities in their opinion. So it sounds like a great idea to have this content moderation council. But at the end of the day, it really... You have to ask the question, is this just another way of shifting the blame? Rather than it being... It's basically setting up a council, a one arbiter of truth. Even though there are multiple people on it, there's one arbiter of truth who can decide what should and should not be allowed. This council can decide what should or should not be allowed on Twitter. 
And if anything, it's just shifting the blame from the Twitter employees who are going through and moderating this content to an official council. And that's not what people were looking for. People were looking for the ability to say whatever they want without fear of being banned or taken off the platform. And whether or not they should have, in your opinion, whether or not they should have the ability to say hateful things or things that you would perceive as hateful that may hurt your feelings or hurt other people's feelings, you can't deny that having the ability to at least say that and then have them be criticized for it is better than them living in fear and not actually stating their true opinion when it comes to a place that is a public forum like Twitter, where we discuss pressing issues that affect our country. We cannot have people afraid to say their viewpoint, no matter how terrible it is, because we need to actually address it on its merits. Maybe someone has a really terrible idea Maybe they have a really terrible way of implementing what they want done, but their thing that they want to get done is actually very noble in premise alone. And then you can go to that person, break down why, how they want to go about enacting whatever they want to enact is wrong, but then you both can together sit down and construct a way to properly enact that, let's say it's a piece of legislation, and it's we want to give more food credits to people that are homeless. And maybe the person wants to make a cutoff at $10,000 income. If you make $10,000 or less, you can get these food stamps. But then someone comes along and says, well, I, I agree, we need to increase the food stamp program. We need to give more of this out to people. But $10,000 or less, that, that is such a large net. We're casting it so wide that we're not going to be able to properly fund it in the future. And I know this kind of isn't a hateful issue or talking about hate speech and those sort of issues, but the premise of the example still stands. The person is trying to do something noble, but they haven't been able to fully think through their opinion and putting it out there on Twitter without being afraid that they will be banned for saying something that other people don't agree with, even the moderators at Twitter or the board that they're putting together won't agree with, it gives that person the opportunity to hear other people's opinions, reevaluate their opinion, and possibly come to a better conclusion that will work more effectively. But that's just one of the many issues, or at least many arguments, for having a more free speech-oriented platform. And of course, there are arguments against it as well. We don't want people to not be able to come into the conversation. We don't want people to be fearful that if they join the conversation, they will be attacked or marginalized. So yes, there are both sides to that. And that's the delicate balance I think Elon is really trying to walk here. He has this idealistic view of what free speech is, but then when it comes to the reality of an online platform where you are not interacting with a person face-to-face -face and you can be as nasty as you want, that's it is obviously much more different than having a conversation in person and people are willing to say more hateful things that could make people not want to be on Twitter and not be a part of the conversation that is shaping our nation. So Elon is in a very, very tight position. He's not going to please everybody here, so he just needs to choose a side and stick with it. And there's uh, one more piece out of this article that I'll bring up very quickly. 
no matter what you think of how Elon wants to go about moderating content, you can't deny that he is doing a good job with this recent uh, ban of six different accounts. Quote, on October 26, 2022, Twitter released six data sets to Twitter Moderation Research Consortium, consisting of six distinct inauthentic networks with technical links to China and Iran that had tweeted about the U.S. states, United States, November 2022 midterm elections, end quote. And though I... I doubt that this is something that was solely done by Elon, especially considering something like this had to be in the works before he became CEO. It still speaks to what he's trying to do and what Twitter's trying, been trying to do, which is to clean up the interference that comes from outside political networks that are operating in foreign countries in order to divide the people. And if Elon takes more steps like this, to ban outside influence on U.S. affairs, I think that's a step in the right direction. And I think at the end of the day, Twitter, when they were going through this research process, maybe pressured by Musk, maybe not, I think that this is a a very crucial step in ensuring that we can at least have an honest dialogue that isn't one that is naturally divisive in America about the future of our country. All right, now we got the really hot, fashionable topic out of the way. We're going to go to one that is much more boring, but just as important, in my opinion. This article comes from The Bell Walk, The Unglamorous Work of Governing. Marty Walsh, the U.S. Secretary of Labor, visited an apprentice training facility in DeForest, Wisconsin. Quote, the October 26th event, less than two weeks before the midterm elections, was announced by the press release the day before. Its stated purpose was, quote, to highlight the Biden-Harris administration's commitment to reducing costs for American families and creating good-paying union jobs through the investment from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, Inflation Reduction Act, and the Chips and Science Act, end quote. So the author is, is highlighting this here and is really trying to show that the Biden administration is trying to capitalize on these big pieces of infrastructure that's put through and also still trying to support the unions at the same time. And it's basically Biden sending out a big representative, Marty Walsh, the secretary of labor to this union facility and saying, we care about the workers. We care about the union support and we want it going forward. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is basically a photo op. It, it's a chance to give some Wisconsin Democrats support from the White House to have them come together and show solidarity on certain issues. But, you know, there is a little bit more to it. Quote, Craig Zellinger, the center's training director, leads the group through a labyrinth of classrooms and training bays, some with dirt floors. The press release promised that the visiting officials will, quote, see... Laborers performing work on concrete, demolition, scaffolding, surveying, grading, sewer and water, pipe fusing, welding, small engine, of asbestos abatement, and environmental remediation, end quote. So, as you see here, I brought this quote in because it highlights these are very mundane. These are very simple training facilities meant to ensure that people have the skills to do a lot of jobs that are not necessarily the most fancy, not the 
white collar jobs. These are the blue collar jobs. And this is important because at the end of the day, these jobs are not fancy. They sound very boring to the average American. And people and political agents who don't really care about, at the end of the day, the blue collar workers, they're going to pass over these type of opportunities and go for the really flashy headlines go to one of the biggest factories in Wisconsin, look at all their new automation, show that they care and they're trying to get rid of regulation and so on and so forth. That's the you know more politically glorious kind of messaging and event that you would see from someone who doesn't care about the blue-collar workers and who's not willing to go down to these really mundane and sometimes seemingly boring places and really speak to the people that voted for them and put them in power. So, you know, the author's trying to get at here that this is an aspect of government that's boring, but it's necessary. And in order to best serve the people, the government has to listen and interact with those same people. And when the Democrats talk about trying to build a new base of blue-collar workers, this is exactly how they go about doing it. They've always supported unions, and they've always tried to speak to those blue-collar union workers. But this is the way that you go and have a grassroots movement. You go and talk to people on the ground at these training facilities, the new members of the union who eventually will be promoted to the top of the union, who can spread the message. And though I don't necessarily agree with all union policies, I think when the author highlights this kind of boring work but necessary work, it really speaks to what we should be expecting of all of our politicians. We should expect them, no matter how boring certain places are to go, even the smallest town in southern Virginia that doesn't normally get a lot of attention, politicians should be actively working in these areas that are underserved or don't necessarily get as much political clout. If there's a rally in Arlington, Virginia, I bet the news agencies will be on it no problem because it's close to D.C., it's a very populous area, there's lots to talk about, there's lots of jobs, infrastructure, major corporations like Amazon coming in. But if a politician held a rally in somewhere down near Hot Springs, and even that's a little bit wealthier, if it was a little bit off the beaten track down in the South Virginia, it would probably only get a few Richmond papers, maybe one correspondent from a national newspaper. And then it kind of disincentivizes these politicians from going down there because if they're not going to get coverage for what they're saying from a national newspaper, then why would I go down there? It doesn't score me any political points. And the author here is highlighting that Marty Walsh and even the Biden administration to some degree, they're, they, they're not, at the end of the day, they don't care. They, there may be a few you know, people who went there, especially this author, who asked a few questions and were willing to report about it. But they're not there just because it's a photo op. They're there because they care, because they want to listen, and they want to be involved in the unions, and they want to ensure that when they go back to Washington, they represent their best interests. And that's what we need from our politicians. We need the ones willing to put in the work and do the things that are considered boring and actually listen to their constituents and take those issues back to Washington and actually act on them and not just pay lip service to them. And that's what I think is great about this article. And what's even better is Marty Walsh did not take 
a political line on this. He did not take, oh, yes, we are the Democrats, we are strong, and Republicans aren't doing enough here. He just was saying, no, we're here for the blue-collar workers. There's a quote here. The author actually asked him a question, and I'm going to read basically a transcript from the press conference. Quote, I asked only two, the only two press questions. The first was about how his Labor Department interprets his mission compared to the previous administration. It sets up the perfect slam dunk about how the Biden administration is on the side of working people as opposed to just looking out for their bosses. But Walsh does not go there. Instead, he says, quote, We are doubling down on workforce development and job training. We're doubling down on worker safety. Our motto is basically protecting workers morning, noon, and night, making sure that we're worker-focused. But we also have to have a relationship with the private sector and businesses. And I'm not picking one side or the other. We have to have employer partners at the table as well, end quote. And let's be clear, that is a very political answer. I'm not taking one side or the other. I want to make sure that the people in the private sector are basically saying that the people in the private sector need to know that we care about them too. So he's not trying to alienate anybody. And he's not, like the author said, taking the opportunity to dunk on the previous Trump administration. And I respect Marty Walsh a lot for this. And I think it's politicians like him who have been working. He actually was a member of the union uh, which built this facility. And his dad was a member of this union as well. And we need more salt-of-the-earth politicians like this who come up through the system, who aren't necessarily in politics their entire life, but maybe politics adjacent, who actually know the working class issues, that know the issues that mean the most to people, and is not trying to, at the end of the day, score political points, but rather speak to the voters and ensure that their voice is heard. And like I said, I have a lot of respect for Marty Walsh for doing what he did, going out there, and like I said, doing something that may be considered boring, but is very crucial. We need more politicians, and he's not necessarily a politician, he's an appointee, but we need more people like Marty in government. Now, if something comes out and he's a part of a big scandal, I will take it back, or at least I'll evaluate the scandal and I'll see whether I take my comments back. But right now, from what I'm seeing from him, I really like what I'm seeing, and I really hope that more people follow in his footsteps going forward, because we're in a very politically divided time, and any person that can come in, try to get rid of the politics, or at least the overt Democrat versus Republican politics, and speak to the working class, and kind of speak to the populace, that's the kind of person that I want in Washington. All right, our last article comes from The Entrepreneur. Is the workplace of the future remote? hybrid, or distributed. Actually, it's all of the above. So as you have no doubt heard or experienced recently, the pandemic really shifted how society views work. It really caused people to step back and realize what they want, what they don't want, or what they value when it comes to working, or even when it comes to what they want to spend their time doing. Maybe some people realize that they want to be a little bit more family-oriented. Or maybe some people realize, no, I don't actually want to be at home and spending as much time with my family. Nothing against them. I love them. But at the end of the day, I'd rather go to work, work really hard for them, and then 
come home, relax with them rather than spending every single second of the day with them. Some people may have come away with that conclusion. I don't think many people did, but some people may have. And there were a lot of studies done afterwards that have really taken a look at what people want. Quote, Gallup published a study of more than 8,000 remote capable workers to learn what they prefer, what they see as the future, and what they plan to do if their company changes directions. 56% said their job can be done entirely remotely today, and only 20% said that they believe fully on-site will remain a valid strategy, down from 60% in 2019. That's more than a 40%. That is a 40% drop. Can we just highlight that? In the span of three years, 40% of people believe that their job does not have to be done entirely on site anymore that's a huge shift that the pandemic caused because not only and i will get back to the quote here in a second but not only are people realizing that they can do more at home but also the pandemic forced a lot of companies and a lot of startups to start creating products that allow people to work from home which now they can still utilize after the pandemic. So the technology for work-at-home programs that can be put on your computer has really evolved during this time period as well. And that's probably why you see that 40% decline since 2019. Quote, only 6% said that they want to work entirely on-site. That means that 94% of employees surveyed want to be more flexible in their strategy with more than 70 million workers in the U.S. estimated to be in remote-capable roles. That's a significant number looking for a more flexible strategy, end quote. So now that people have really seen that the grass is much greener on the other side, they do not want to go back to what they had before. And I, I really understand when it comes to having that flexibility. I don't necessarily know what it's like because I haven't been I wasn't in the workforce before and after the pandemic but I've talked to a lot of people at my summer internship who are now doing three days in the office and two days remotely because they live so far away it seems more practical and they can get almost the same amount of work done if not a little bit more so I see why a lot of people want a more flexible strategy maybe they want more time to spend with their kids when their kids aren't at school. Maybe they want a little bit more time to spend with friends and family. And at the end of the day, if you really break it down, if you're not spending as much money on gas to get to work, if you're not going out to all these fancy luncheons with your coworkers, then you're also saving money. So of course it makes sense that some people really are hesitant to go to a uh, entirely back on site kind of job. Quote, after two years of the great work experiment in which vast portions of the workforce were forced to work from home, we only have, we have a lot of information and data. Here's what we've learned. Workers are more productive at home. A Stanford University study found that working from home full time was equivalent to adding a full day of productivity per week. Workers are more likely to stay at their employer. The same study indicated turnover decreased by 50% as employees felt more loyal and refreshed because they could have be more comfortable at home and spend more time with friends and family, end quote. And this makes sense. When you're willing to be more flexible with your employees, when you're able, willing and able to accommodate them more, 
they're going to feel a little bit more loyalty when they feel that their voice is being heard and that they get to determine a little bit more of how they go about their workflows rather than being monitored by cameras or keystroke trackers at the office. They can sit at home, get their work done, be a little bit more relaxed. Then, of course, they're going to feel a little bit more loyalty. They're going to feel more productive, and therefore, they're going to want to stay at the company for a little bit longer. I, I really think those trends hold, and obviously, these studies highlight it as well. But it just makes sense from a quick logic check, in my opinion. So these factors are great for workers, and they also really do cut in favor of the employers as well. Like I described when talking in the daily debate, now employers don't necessarily have to compensate some workers for driving in long distances. They don't have to spend as much money on having as for having a whole bunch of hardware and technology and software licenses bought for their computers. They don't necessarily have to have as much storage on site. They can have them in web servers now, which they can rent rather than having to have a large upfront investment of having servers that they own on site. And at the end of the day, you can downsize your office. If 50% of your workforce doesn't come in anymore, why do you need such a big office? You can pay less for electricity. You can, at the end of the day, pay less in rent if you're not just outright building a building like Capital One and all these big corporations do in Northern Virginia. So you can see how this is beneficial for both the employee and employer. Because if you're, one, if you're cutting down costs, great. But also, if your employees are more productive and they feel like they're more valued, they'll stay longer. And that all helps the employer as well as the employee because then the employee is not going to get burned out and the employer is going to get more bang for their buck, essentially. They're going to get more productivity out of the worker. Who wouldn't want that? So the author describes this post-COVID business strategy as one that's more flexible. And the word he really uses a lot is agile. And there are plenty of examples of companies using this new strategy in two different categories quote, fully distributed organizations, rather than trying to employ all technology workers in traditional markets, Silicon Valley, Seattle, Los Angeles, etc., companies will establish hubs all around the world. Top talent can be obtained and retained in lower-cost markets like Eastern Europe, India, or Southeast Asia, or even small non-traditional cities in the U.S. like Boise, Idaho. And then the second type is, quote, full remote organizations. These organizations have removed the requirement to be in the office entirely for nearly every role and now employ a global work-where-you-are strategy. Companies like GetHub, with 1,500 employees in more than 65 countries, have gone even further. They have no company-owned offices at all. Dropbox, the first virtual, the virtual first, now retains 16 studios worldwide, but employees are not required to come in or be near a location, end quote. And while this does raise some concerns about offshoring some of the jobs to other countries and really draining people from working in, within their own market and working for U.S. companies, it still encourages a lot more flexibility. And the thing is, maybe in the future, when other countries have started to follow these same trends, maybe U.S.-based 
people can actually work for European countries or Indian companies who are trying to offshore or at least are willing to have a work-where-you-are strategy. So their home office could be in Mumbai, India, but they want to hire people to work in the U.S., and if you can do everything virtually, then you could work for a company based out of India without having to leave your living room. So it works both ways. Just because we're offshoring some jobs from the United States doesn't mean other countries aren't going to start offshoring some of their jobs as well. So at the end of the day, the question that you need to ask yourself is, is this new model going to change the business environment? Are you going to have to experience this going out into the workforce? Or have you started to experience this as you're working? Or is it you know, really simply a fad? Are employers soon going to realize that, oh, I don't have as much control over my employees. I can't monitor them as closely. So maybe we should go back to in-person working. I mean, what's your opinions? Throw them down in the comments. Because obviously, as you've heard me talk, I have many opinions about this one. And I want to hear some others. All right. Now we're going to move on to our daily delight. This one's from My Modern Met. Baby elephant thanks little girl after she helps it get unstuck from the mud. So though elephants are massive creatures that operate really independently of the workings of the human world, sometimes they need assistance. Quote, this was a case for a baby elephant who got stuck in the mud on the side of the road. Luckily, a little girl approached it and did her best to free it. The best part is that it all got captured in a heartwarming video for all of us to see. In the short clip, we can see a baby elephant struggling to get its leg unstuck from a muddy path on the side of the road, end quote. And, you know, it was, it was sad to see this little guy struggle to get out of the mud, and whenever he would get one paw up, he would have to put it back down to try to get the others out. So it was, it was kind of sad. But, quote, a brave little girl enters the scene. Given the size of the animal, her physical efforts do little to move its body, but she does her best to assist the elephant and guide him out. In the most moving moment, once the elephant has made it out, the calf turns to the girl and raises its trunk, as if saying, thank you, end quote. You know, it's a really heartwarming video, and if you want to see any of the cute videos or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. Follow me there for commentary, up-to-date news, day-to-day. And also, if you just want a direct link to the podcast every single day when it goes live, I post it there. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.